Today's scripture reading is taken from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming you have heard about the administration of God's grace that he gave me for you, the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have briefly written above. By reading this, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This was not made known to people in other generations, as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. So then I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are your glory. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Y'all hear me? Okay. Let me see here. We're good? Okay. Um, one, of our, one of our regular traditions at Trinity on Pi's Giving is for me to have microphone issues. And so I didn't know if we were going to keep that going or maybe break with it a little bit. Um, good morning. It's really good to be here with you. Um, it is a pleasure. We, uh, I, I love this church. Uh, my wife and I, my wife and my children couldn't be here this morning. It's a little bit hard with the, the two-year-old and the one-year-old. It's, 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 kind of, it's kind of wild to get them here. But um, so she, she, is, she is sad to be missing because over the last few years, we have come to love our visits here on Pies Giving. Uh, partially because of pies, obviously. That's just a, it's, it's amazing. I don't know who, who doesn't like pies. If you don't, we can talk afterwards and talk about the gospel. Um, but, uh, but besides that, this is just a really good gospel-saturated, uh, warm, welcoming congregation that I'm really happy to partner with. And I, before we got into the sermon, uh, they asked me to give a little bit about, a little bit of an update about the partnership that we are involved in. And, and just so you know, when we talk about partnership, my understanding is not just that this congregation um, uh, financially supports the ministry that we do on campus at UC Irvine, although that, that is part of the understanding. My understanding is that you are co-laborers with me. That as you pray for me, as you um, support, as I have felt that support, and, and, and so you're a part of, the, are part of the work of the ministry on campus at UC Irvine. So just want to let you know, um, this year uh, has been uh, a great year so far. We, we kick things off much later than a bunch of you. Uh, so I see some college students, and, and most of you probably got rolling in August or something like that. Like that. UCI 
uh, got started late September. So it's kind of a later year than usual, but it got started really well. Um, one of the great things that we've seen this year is as we have continued to progress over the last few years, the last few years have been kind of regrowth years after the COVID, uh, the COVID bust. Um, but things got off to a really big start at that time. And since then, uh, what's been fun is seeing a whole bunch of students who didn't know each other a couple of years ago start to coalesce, start to become a community, start to grow in Christ, and now start to incorporate others into that community as new freshmen and new transfers come on campus. And, and, and seeing our students really start to take ownership of the ministry as their own, recognizing it's not just, it's not just Derek's ministry, Pastor Derek's ministry, or even my new intern, Jackie, who, by the way, I have a new intern named Jackie Lee. She's awesome. If you want to hear about her, uh, get to know her ministry. We can talk about that later. Um, but it's not just our ministry. It's their ministry. And as our students start to step up and take ownership and start to lead Bible studies and start Bible studies and reach out and invite their friends, and, and I start handing off more and more things to them, um, it's been a real uh, blessing to see them start to mature into the full stature of Christ, as Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4. Um, seeing them reach out to me and say, hey, we haven't seen uh, so-and-so in a couple of weeks. You may want to give them a text or, or, hey, can we start, can we have this impromptu night for our girls just to kind of develop that community and say, yeah, great, let's do it. So, so having them start to generate ideas, having them to start to generate uh, insights into how we can reach out to the campus and develop the community and, and dwell, bring one another up. Actually, one of my other students um, is a young man who's headed to seminary next year. Um, he, of his own uh, volition, pulled, pulled under his wing uh, two or three uh, fr freshmen and sophomore guys, and he's taking them through a book called The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson. And, and that's just an, their initiative kind of thing. And so one exciting thing that's happening on campus at UCI is that organic growth is happening and mature uh, student leadership is happening. Alongside the other thing that we like to see, so I don't know if you guys know, RUF, Reform University Fellowship, our, our mission is, our statement is to reach students for Christ and equip them to serve the church, right? I've seen our students start to become equipped to serve the church, but one of the other things that's happening is that we are uh, starting to we are reaching students for Christ. The last few weeks, uh, the last quarter, I've managed to get into contact with an increasing number of just non-Christian students. Uh, one, one student comes to mind. He's a young man who uh, came in from the East Coast. He's had no contact with church almost his whole life. He said he sang choir uh, once or twice, but he's just never gone to church didn't know the gospel, never heard anything about anything. Our, kid, our students reached out to him. He showed up at one of our Chick-fil-A events. And then since then, I keep running into him at the gym. I, I work out at the UCI gym. And we've grabbed coffee three or four times and started talking about the gospel. Started talking about identity in Christ and what it is to not build your life on an idol. And, and this young man, we're speaking about hard truths about how he's grinding and pursuing a degree and wants to make money and how basically all of that is... Nothing without an overarching telos to his life. And his eyes, I see him each week saying, hey, I was thinking about what you're talking about. And I never really considered what goal I had beyond these three years, these four. And we're starting to see non-believers consider the claims of Jesus and believers grow up into the stature of Jesus. And none of that would be happening without the people of Jesus praying 
for the spirit of Jesus to be at work on campus, which is what we have been seeing for the last last couple of years. And those are just a couple of little glimpses. Um, If you want to know more about that, talk to me afterwards. Uh, If you're not on our mailing list, we can put you on our our regular update mailing list, or you can follow us on Instagram, uh, ruf at UC Irvine. There's always photos and stuff that we're doing. Um, But one of the things that we're doing this quarter, uh, all of what we do is based around God's word. Right? We have Bible studies, we have small groups, uh, and we also have our large group teaching times. And one of the main things that we're doing right now is we are unfolding the book of Ephesians. So we try and center all that we do, asking the big questions about life and the cosmos and everything. We, we always tell our students each week, you're not just here to get a degree, you get a piece of paper to you off, make some money. Although hopefully you make some money, uh, get a return on your parents' investment. Uh, what, what, we, what, we, what we hope for is that you're also coming to a university to gather a unified view of reality across all sorts of subjects, whether it's politics, economics, relationships, uh, metaphysics, ethics, all of it. And our, our conviction is that the only way that you can do that in a truly consistent and holistic and, and, and coherent way that will bear up under the strain of life is to do that in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the key in the center to all things, and so everything radiates out from him, and so all of reality can be considered rightly only in light of him. And so one of the, way, one of the ways that we do that is that we, 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 we teach about him. And so this quarter, what we're doing is we're looking at the book of Ephesians, and that is the text that I want to, we just heard from, and I want to preach on this morning. But in order to do that, I want to transition a little bit and just pray I want us to pray for God to enlighten our hearts and minds to see into the mystery of Christ a little bit more this morning. So uh, with that said, would you guys bow your heads and pray with me? Holy Father, you are good. Uh, You are good and kind and merciful and wise beyond all fathoming. And we ask you right now that the spirit of wisdom that you have would pervade this place, be at work in our hearts and minds, giving us spiritual eyes to see and spiritual ears to hear what your word says about your son, in whose name we pray all things. Amen. Um, So I don't have a big fancy intro to this sermon uh, beyond what I gave you in the, in the intro to, to what we're doing at, uh, as a community. But what I wanted to focus your eyes in on for a second is looking at that text towards the back end of Ephesians 3, uh, 1 to 13. We're, 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 I'm struck by the request that, that Paul issues to his people. Uh, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering. To, to understand that request, because it seems like a throwaway line. If you're kind of blazing through the passage, there's all these these beautiful phrases, these deep mysteries, and so, but there's this very normal human request of, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering. To understand it, you kind of have to understand the sweep of the letter that we're reading, right? Because the book of Ephesians is a letter. You're reading somebody's mail. Paul is a first century Christian leader, a church planter, uh, 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 an apostle uh, who has planted a church, and he helped found the church in this city of Ephesus, which is a city that in, in what we know as modern-day uh, Turkey, right? And, and in this time, 
Paul is writing to this church, not when Christianity is a major world religion, not when it has two and a half billion adherents worldwide, not when it has glorious buildings and cathedrals and institutions and universities and a long, venerable history uh, or <laughs> notorious history in some cases. It, it, none, of all the, none of those things have happened. None of those things are true. All it is in most people's minds in the Greco-Roman world is a small Middle Eastern cult that is starting to infiltrate slowly into these cities, uh, this, this, odd, this odd Jewish sect that claimed that there was one Jew, a man named Jesus, who was crucified, and then they said got back up again, and now is Lord of the cosmos, of the universe. And what Paul is doing is he's writing a letter to this church in Ephesus partially in order to re-narrate that story for them to tell the story of the universe, to tell the story of Jesus, and to tell the story in a way that, that out-narrates all the other stories that they're living in. Because you and I just, you know, we're story, we live our lives uh, in stories. We live our lives, we have small-scale narratives and large-scale narratives, and one of the ways that we, we live out our narratives, one of the ways we, we, we have stories reinforced is by looking around us at the culture and the world. And in the culture of the world, the Greco-Roman world, they were constantly living in another story, right? Through their architecture, through their, through their civic rituals, through their votes, through all these sorts of things, we had different stories. We had stories about, about the Lord Emperor of Rome, who is uh, a son of a god, who is a deity, who, who rules over the known cosmos. You have other stories about, the, about, the, about Aphrodite, who's the, the goddess of fertility, and the, and the story that, that, that you live in with her is if you worship her, you give her homage and fealty, she will bless you with children, and so on and so forth. These are the stories in the world that they inhabit that are ensconced in, in narrative and song and poetry and civic ritual and, and you know, going to the Go into the post office to get your mail. You had to invoke, the, essentially, you had to invoke the deities. This is the world they lived in. And so what Paul is doing is he's, he's writing this narrative in order to reintegrate them into the proper story, the story that they've signed on to. And this is important. Uh, this is important for a lot of reasons, but, but this is important especially uh, for, for the, for the small-scale reason or the, or the, the immediate reason uh, that Paul alludes to in this, in this uh, section because Paul is writing not from a nice, cushy uh, church office because he's writing actually in chains, right? Uh, Paul reminds us in chapter 3, verse 1, that he is writing these things as a prisoner for Christ on their behalf. He is suffering the extreme of political, social, and economic marginalization for the sake of sharing the gospel, and his concern is that his people, who are already bombarded by all these different narratives, all these different stories, all these different cross-pressured beliefs that would, that would cause them to doubt and lose faith, would now be caused even more doubt as they see Paul in prison. And that makes sense, right? Because wouldn't you start to worry... Imagine you've been brought into this new belief system that's already kind of shaky, as it were, because it's a small little, small, I mean, you have to be a really early adopter, put it this way. Early adopters for tech, they're always taking a risk. Early, adopter, early adopters for religion, even more. So you see the founder, as it were, the guy who brought you in on this thing, is now suffering in jail for the message that he convinced you to believe. Wouldn't you start to worry? Wouldn't you start to doubt? 
maybe you'd start to, to worry that you'd start to run up against the same opposition. And perhaps you'd start to have questions because isn't, this, isn't the story that this guy told that, that his Lord, Jesus Christ, is the Lord of all the cosmos and now he's sitting in prison? This, is, this, seems, this seems inappropriate. This seems untoward. This seems to not fit the story I had been told. And so Paul moves to comfort them. And some of us might be tempted to check out at this point because none of us are close to sitting in chains, right? None of us are really worried about Pastor Eric getting swept up by the, I don't know, Tustin PD or something like that for preaching this morning. None of us are really worried about severe social and political and economic suffering for the sake of the gospel. This is why we're all here in public dressed nicely and about to have coffee and pie. But here's the thing, I can guarantee you that every, everyone in here is either coming out of suffering, in the middle of suffering, or heading into suffering at some point in the future. Everyone seated in here. Suffering is coming. Some of it may be for the name of Jesus, right? That is coming. You have to mentally and spiritually prepare yourself, whether that's the small-scale suffering of being the only Christian in your family, I don't know, to future job, job loss or, or opposition or whatever. But, but even beyond that, suffering of all sorts, the everyday suffering of living in a broken and fallen world, the suffering of a job loss, the suffering of a diagnosis for you, your spouse, your child, the suffering of dealing with mental health crises, the suffering of physical pain that you didn't see coming, the suffering of, I don't know, you name it. You name it. You have to figure out how to face loss, how to face suffering, and keep going. And the question is, what are our options in the face of true spiritual pain? One time-honored option is just to stuff it right? If you're going through something, that's okay. Bear up, suck it up, be a stoic. Kind of just bear up under it and then, you know, let it manifest itself as an ulcer later on or something else later on. And and then then that's it. You get some Pepsi. The other one is the Christian version of that is to suffer, stuff it, and say, the Lord's good. He's good. He's so good. And then, I don't know, break down in Eric's office in a few months or something like that. Um, Or... So you can stuff it, you can Christian stuff it, or you can really own it. Just own it, just be authentic and messy and, and just really own your suffering and have it turn into your whole personality and, uh, and, and, and then maybe post it on TikTok or something like that and have a whole channel dedicated to it. And, and, um, and then the, the suffering there is not just your suffering internally, it's the suffering of everyone around you that deals with your open, authentic messiness that doesn't really deal with it but turns it into... Uh, and you can own pain in a certain way that actually revels in it. And you hang on to it and you need it, in a sense. Is that what Paul is advocating here, though? No, no. He's not just advocating open bitterness. He's not just advocating suffering. He's advocating, in a sense, he's telling his people not to lose heart, which is to say, I recognize their suffering, You have to be open about it, but not lose heart. Why? In light of what I think the key is this phrase, to not lose heart over what he's suffering in light of the manifold wisdom of God. 
Right? What we need to see here in this text is that Paul sees his sufferings, not as isolated events, but in light of the broader plan that, Paul, that God has been revealing through, that God has been revealing to sum up all things in and through Christ and his church. This is the mystery that Paul says has been hidden for ages. Right? Over the course of this whole letter, if you go back and read it, you'll read that God's plan to save the whole world has been to save all people, to unify all people, Jew and Gentile, in and through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the fulfillment of a long-range plan, the promises that he gave to the Jews through over centuries. The plan was for him to come to rule and reign and live and die and rise again. And this is a plan that nobody had seen. What Paul understands is that God in this plan is displaying an astonishing depth of wisdom in his mystery and not just any, any wisdom. It's a manifold one. It's a multifaceted one. It's a one that you hold it up like a diamond and it's got angles on it, right? It's a saving wisdom of an infinite God who has no limits. And what I want to do the rest of this morning is think for a moment about this wisdom and think about it in four dimensions, as Paul relates his personal suffering, his small-scale narrative to the, the grand cosmic plan of God in Christ. And, and the four aspects I want us to see about the, the manifold wisdom of God is that it's a gracious wisdom, it's a creative and eternal wisdom, it's a paradoxical wisdom, and it's a hopeful wisdom. And as you grasp the depths and the riches of the wisdom of God, I think you start to have an emerging picture of how you can not lose heart in the middle of the suffering that will inevitably come for you. So the first thing I want us to think about then is the gracious wisdom of God. Paul highlights in this text God's grace to himself, right? First, Paul is very clear that he is saved and brought into the family of God as a gift, not one that he's earned, not something he can brag about, not because he's so awesome or intelligent or wise, but surely as a gift. Notice he calls himself the least of all the saints. As the commentator notes, he makes up a new word. He, he's the leastest of all the servants of God because in his former life, actually, he used to hate God's people. He used to arrest them. He used to hunt them down. He used to persecute them. He used to have them sent in jail and perhaps even be killed. Until one day, Jesus shows up blinds him, knocks him off his horse, and says, you're working for me. And he's by grace saves him and turns his whole life around. Paul was the last person that you would want going off preaching to the Gentiles. He was a Jewish purist. And now he's the poster boy for Gentile mission and the gospel of the good news of grace of the grace of God to all. And so Paul's whole ministry is a miracle of God's grace. And this is important. This is important for you to understand is that it's not just Paul. It's all of us. All of us can say we are the least. And unless you can say that, in the middle of suffering, whether it's persecution or physical illness or whatever, it will, you will inevitably fall into the blame game, Right? The blame game of suffering. So the first thing that can happen to you when you suffer is if, if you don't know about the grace of God, the first thing you're going to do is start to blame yourself, right? Suffering is a sign that God hates me 
and God is punishing me and God is judging me because of that thing I did when I was 15, the way I've been living my life, the, the fact that I forgot to tithe, or the fact that I didn't, I didn't follow the one book that told me how to raise my child as a proper Christian, or the, whatever it is that you think, you're going to go hunting back over the years into the darkest memories and the darkest resources of your heart to, for some explanation for why you're currently suffering, because there has to be blame for it. You must deserve it. And if you don't do that, your only other option is then to flip it and start to blame God. Right? God, I, I, don't, I don't know what's going on here. Um, I, think I've, I think I've been doing pretty well. Right? I've been going to church. I tithe. I've been raising my kids. I read that book. Um, I, 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 I put into place the plan. I drive the right car. I vote the right way. I, I'm kind to people. I, I, this feels like a contract breach, to be honest. I, 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 shouldn't have to, I shouldn't have to go to that doctor. I shouldn't have to make that appointment. I, I shouldn't have to submit all these applications. Uh, I shouldn't have to be on these meds. I shouldn't have to keep seeing that therapist. I, I should still be married. She should still love me. He should still be alive. You failed. You broke the contract. Unless you know. See, here's the thing. Unless you know that you've been saved by grace... Unless you know that the Son of God, as Pastor Eric already noted, unless you know that the Son of God died to pay for all of your sins, which means God's not punishing you, right? It, you know, if you step on a rake and, and, and it hits you in the face and you're suffering some, some discipline, that's one thing. But, but the idea that God is cruelly punishing you for your sins, that's not an option for you if you know the Son of God died for you, but also not an option for you is blaming God because God has in Christ given you all things. He's given you the grace of the gospel. He's given you salvation and union with his son. And most of all, he's proved to you that he loves you, loves you enough to die for you in the flesh. And so, so grace sets you free from the blame game and without it, Without it, you will only have insult added to your injury that will force you to keep God at arm's length in the middle of your suffering. So that's the first thing Paul wants them to recognize is the grace that's been afforded him. The second thing he wants them to know is that this wisdom of God is not only gracious, it's creative and eternal. Right? Paul notes here both of these things, and these two things, I think, go, go hand in hand. First, he talks about the eternal purpose that God has realized in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this purpose is this, is this mystery that's been hidden for ages, but, this is, but that's now been revealed. And what you have to understand is that you start to realize, going back and reading the whole Bible, God has, been setting in a, set, has set in motion a plan from the garden to save all all things, to sum up all things in Christ. This goes all the way back from, from, from the first promise to Adam and Eve after they fell all the way through the, pl 
plan going through Abraham all the way through Isaac and the promised child and saving the Israelites out of, out of Egypt and, and through the covenant and the law and the prophets and the conquest and all of that culminating in, in as we've said, this one crucified Jew at the outer edges of the Roman Empire where nobody, nobody was looking for salvation. Nobody was looking for a savior. Nobody was looking for a king. And there he was, dead and then risen. And the source of salvation for all, and what, what Paul is getting us to understand is that this was not an accident. This was not a series of creative gestures on the part of God. Where, well, well, they're doing this. Well, maybe now I'll do this. Maybe now I'll do this. Oh, this will work. No, this is actually God. This is something that God foresaw and actually decreed from the four the foundations of the creation of which he is the author. Think about this. The only God who could survey all of human history at a sweep and decree a perfect culmination in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the God who set all things in motion. The God who, by the word of his power, spoke into existence the cosmos, the galaxies, supernovas, and, and, and the, the largest black holes into the, the, the tiniest quarks and leptons. I don't know what a lepton is, but it's tiny. And he has his hand on it. Right? He's the one who decreed and declared the universal constants that keep our universe, I don't know, from, from collapsing into nothingness or expanding and flying out into the ether. This is the creative and eternal wisdom of God revealed in Christ. And you have to understand that. You have to grasp how little you grasp. Because one of the easiest reasons there is to lose heart in the middle of suffering is because we believe the premise that if there's no reason that we can see, there must not be a reason. And as soon as you say it, it's stupid, right? If there's no reason that I can, I can see, obviously the infinite God of the universe couldn't have one. To utter it is, is to have it, have it undone, but nevertheless, it's something that our hearts deeply believe. And this is one of those truths that, that, I mean, this is not a silly truth. This is actually one of the main truths that the book of Job was written to answer, right? The book of Job, this wonderful book, uh, meditating on the suffering of a man who suffers, I think has suffered more than maybe all of us in this room. Job, Job has lost everything. Job has lost Children and, 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 and livestock and, and his whole house, his reputation, all things, his health and his good name. And over this, over this meditation of this whole work, he, he, he argues back and forth with his friends about his righteousness in front of the God whom he served until finally God has been silent this whole time. And in Job, Job chapter 38, he, he, he shows up and begins to ask Job his own questions where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And what you have to understand is, you know, God goes on this like this for about three or four chapters. What you have to understand is that God isn't simply flattening Job with the raw assertion of power, although there's a little bit of a flex there. No, instead, um, 
I kind of thought of it this, uh, there's a philosopher named Eleanor Stump. She's got a book called Wandering in Darkness, and she opened my eyes to this reading of things. Um, how many of you have maybe in your foolishness, foolishness uh, and youth looked up at your parents when they, when they refused to give you something that you wanted? Um, perhaps it was ice cream uh, or motor oil for breakfast or something silly like that, and, and said, you don't even love me. Right? Have one of your kids say that to you? And all of a sudden, mom goes from being like, how dare you, after my 894 hours in labor, and, and, and you just unleashes, right? If my child, my child kept me up for two hours last night in the middle of the night, and all, all, the, all the things that, that, that a parent does to just keep their child alive that their child will never know until they have their own. It's like, you have no idea what you tried to eat. You have no idea what you tried to jump off of and were viciously angry at me when I stopped you from dying of, right? God is trying to open Job's eyes to a perspective he, poss- he couldn't possibly fathom. And it is a perspective that is suffused with love. We've already seen that in the cross, but it is still utterly beyond his finite understanding. And as distant as your toddler's understanding is from you as an adult parent, so distant is God's understanding from yours. And that's an understatement. Which brings me to the next bit of wisdom. It's, this, this infinite wisdom is also a paradoxical wisdom, right? This one isn't as clear, but you need to see it desperately. The wisdom of God is paradoxical, non-obvious that you wouldn't see coming. And think about how absurd and ludicrous so much of the gospel is. God decides to accomplish his ultimate victory, to display his glory in the church and to the powers in the heavenly places, which is what he says here. How does he do that? He goes about conquering the power of sin by allowing sin to unleash its worst against his son. He goes about uh, going to disarm the devil by letting the devil um, conspire against his anointed. He goes about disarming death by dying. He goes about reconciling Jew and Gentile, all of humanity together by allowing humanity to tear him apart on the cross. Indeed, his greatest glory on earth, the revelation of his truth, his justice, his beauty, the outshining of all things, John says, occurs in his moment of victory when he's lifted high up in shame on a cross, hung up naked and bleeding like a pulped piece of meat for you and for me. And that is when God, that is when John says his glory shines out, his weightiness, the outshining of of the heart of the cosmos was made visible in the death of Jesus Christ. The wisdom of God is paradoxical. It is not obvious. It is not what you would have predicted. We need to know about this paradoxical wisdom because the third challenge that might tempt us to lose heart in the middle of suffering is the challenge of shame. We don't often talk about this, but suffering is shameful to many of us. First, suffering for Christ will always involve shame. That's the, that's the point. You're bad, you're a bigot, 
you're wicked, you're terrible, all the, but, but there's so many other sufferings out there that involve shame. So often we don't talk about it. When you, have, when you, when you deal with, with physical maladies, especially the thing, okay, you break, your, you break your leg, okay, oh, I'm so sorry, and as long as you got the cast on, you know, that, that's fine, but there's so many other things, that, the chronic pain, the undiagnosed physician to physician, therapist to therapist pain, where they ask you what's wrong, you're like, well, and you get so tired of explaining it. But you'd rather not, you'd rather not have the quizzical looks or the pity. Some of you are not sharing what you're walking through with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You walk in here with a smile on your face because you're scared of the pity on their faces. And you rob yourself of that comfort. You're walking through intense levels of mental torment because of the shame. But Paul doesn't think that way. Paul knows that in his suffering, he is actually following the suffering of his Lord. As Jesus said, a servant is not greater than his master. And in fact, there's a way that God can actually use your suffering to bring about a greater glory in your life than you could have ever imagined. Yes, the suffering of enduring with Christ Suffering for Christ's name, absolutely there is that glory. But there is also the glory that comes when you endure in the middle of ordinary, everyday suffering and hang on by the power of the Spirit as God purifies you, as we sang in How Firm a Foundation, as the dross is drained and all that's left is purified gold as you, as you let go of everything else. You start to let go of worldly loves. You start to let go of your idols. You start to let go of earthly pride. You start to let go of all the things you used to boast in and you cling only and solely to Jesus. And there's a glory that comes from the holiness that God is working in you. And so the shame is put to the side when you start to understand that this is the road to glory. So we cannot forget the paradoxical wisdom of God finally, briefly, it's a hopeful wisdom because of all these things. He doesn't get here explicitly in the passage. But the fact, of the fact of the matter is that the wisdom of God is displayed not only in Christ crucified, but Christ crucified and risen. That's who, Je that's who Paul's talking about in this passage. God's wisdom doesn't just include Jesus hanging on the cross forever. There is resurrection and ascension on the other side. And it's only because we are united to the currently reigning and risen Jesus Christ that we can be unified in the church and have hope in the gospel. And this is super important. This is crucial for you to grasp in the middle of your pain because one of the most, one of the most debilitating parts of pain and suffering is the lie that we are tempted to believe that this is all there's ever going to be. That this is it forever. That there's no other horizon all there is is the cloud. All there is is the storm. Um, I don't bring this up for pity, but there were several years of my life when I was a young man, from 24 to I'm about 10 year, 10 year span, where I suddenly um, kind of had my legs cut out from under me physically. I, I had bilateral knee pain. I couldn't walk. I couldn't stand uh, for very long periods of time without pain. Uh, I went to doctor after doctor and... Um, there's all sorts of issues going on. It was undiagnosed. And uh, it was only many years later I started to pull out of it. But the, the worst part of that was not 
necessarily the physical element to it because there's people who suffered way worse than I did during those years. It was the idea that this was all there was, that it could only be downhill from here, that there was no end in sight, that this is, this is it. And what the resurrection of Jesus tells us is, in fact, on the other side of the cross, for those who are in Christ, there is new life. On the other side of suffering, there is glory. On the other side of pain, there is comfort. This is why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that he considers these sufferings light and momentary in, the weight, in light of the weight of the glory that is to come. That God has prepared for us. So at the end of the day, I can't tell you why you suffer or why you will suffer or why you have suffered. What I can do is give you four questions to ask in the middle of your suffering or when the suffering comes about the wisdom of God. The first question you have to ask yourself is, has this suffering robbed me of the riches of the grace of God? Do I still have a right as a son or a daughter to go boldly to God in confidence, in prayer, with full access, as Paul, Paul says in these pages. Second, do I think I'm seeing the whole picture? Have I believed the lie that I've seen all that God could possibly see? Or have I trusted there's a God beyond that? Third, am I considering my shame rightly? Is it shame or is it really a road to glory? Am I leaning into that? And fourth, is this anything that resurrection will not fix one day? And is this anything that the power of the one who resurrected Jesus Christ, who even now I am united with by faith, cannot begin to work in my life right now? Is Jesus the ascended and risen Lord? Is he my Lord? Is he my life? If he is, is not the wisdom of God at work on my behalf? And can I not trust it for just a little bit longer? Bow your heads and pray with me. Father, we ask you right now that you would help us to take comfort in the middle of our sufferings to be firmly rooted in the truth of your word in the wisdom of your power the kindness and might of your gracious hand God we ask you that in this time and in this place you would orient our hearts and our minds and our souls upon that truth give us a spiritual vision of what we cannot see. And we might know these things and be transformed by them in the power of your spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.